Hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Conrad. I'm Denise. I'm Jason. I'm Adam. Now, Mark and Keith from Trap One reviewed a vinyl version of this story back in 2019, triggering a cataclysmic chain of events that plunged the entire world into lockdown for two whole years and a flux event. <laughs> but it wasn't the final end, and a few of us groovy kids have gathered in the Tricolor coffee bar for an animated discussion of a Blu-ray release of The Evil of the Daleks. Yay! Yay! <laughs> no, it's all their fault. It, so it makes it look so easy. Um, so now, my first encounter of this of Eva the Daleks, I was just trying to think back, was in like the early '80s when there was a sort of trade of like underground, like little cassettes where you had bits of terrible copies of of soundtracks and stuff. And I definitely remember hearing Dizzy Daleks and all that kind of stuff on some old C90 cassettes back in the day. I think I saw the episode that they put on Lost in Time DVD and then basically didn't revisit it until this this set. How about you guys? Have you done any novels or, or any aspect of it? How did you first encounter Evil of the Daleks? The first time I listened to it all the way through was, um, you know, Audible has got uh, lots and lots of Doctor Who audio on there and it was on there as a missing story. So um, that was the first time I listened to it all the way through. And what a wonderful story, I thought. I mean, uh, it always says a lot when the audio alone stands up so well, or with just with some good non-intrusive narration, which this one definitely was. Yeah, I, th- I think I first came across the story. Uh, probably the some photos of the Emperor Dalek in Doctor Who Weekly. Uh, when it first started, obviously it was mainly comic strips, but as they morphed into like the monthly and then the magazine, they started doing what they called then was the archive. Uh, but it wasn't anything like you know production notes from Andrew Pixley or anything like that. It was literally just some photographs from the story itself with uh, a brief synopsis of what happened in the story. And I just remember seeing that as a kid and going, wow, that looks absolutely awesome. You know, <laughs> Daleks battling Daleks, and look at the size of that emperor. And then it wasn't really, I don't think, until obviously we got episode two on the Dalek tapes on VHS. Oh, yeah. That we got a taste of, like, the story. And then I think the following year, we then got the cassette version narrated by Tom Baker. And I remember buying that like as soon as it came up and lapped it up and then I absolutely loved the story from there nice I think uh, my first encounter with it and I was thinking about this actually earlier today would have been in Dot Two magazine um, in the I want to say mid 90s where I think they just discovered uh, a new collection of uh, old collection I should say of, of telesnaps and they started reprinting them in them and I think the first issue I ever got of Dot Two magazine had I want to say it would be part five printed in there. And that's when I first came, you know, became aware of it. And then probably a few months later, I picked up the novelization by John Peel in the, in the library. Um, and yeah. And then a few years later, I picked up the, I think the second audio book, which they did or the re-released audio book, which was, I think Fraser Hines uh, narrating it. Um, but I would have last listened to that. Ooh, 10 years ago before I, I listened to this, but it always stuck in my head. I, I always thought it was a great story. 
Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And and how about the um the anim- when this animation comes out, when when an animation new animation comes out, I've got a very specific way that I I what, what I go for on an animation when it comes out. The first thing is I get it on DVD because I want those DVD spines. God damn it, I am collecting the Blu-rays, <laughs> but I've put so much love into that DVD collection, and I want those spines matching. So the first thing I do is I'm turning that cover around. I'm having that grey spine. <laughs> That's the first thing that happens. But um, generally, if I want to watch a story, I will go to the black and white animation um, every time for me. And then if there are any existing bits, I'll watch the existing episodes. I'll definitely slot those in. And then quite soon, I'm off to those telesnaps because I bloody love a telesnap. Some people are kind of can do them. Some people just can't do them. How about you guys? Do you go? I mean, Mark has goes for the steel book which he watches while throwing huge piles of cash onto the fire. He like, he likes <laughs> Guilty as charged. Oh, Jason, he's got you to. So go on. So Jason, you like a steelbook, I take it. Yeah. I mean, um, since the, um, we've had the collection season box sets, I've slowly been, whenever they announce one of those, I have, you know, been selling the old DVDs on, um, eBay just for storage. Really. I, I can't have both the Blu-rays and the DVDs. I've got the room. So I have now, um, I know when Power of the Daleks came out, I bought it on DVD, then I bought it on Steelbook, and then I bought the special edition on Blu-ray as well. But obviously now I've kind of like got rid of the, uh, the DVD of that. So I now just stick to the, the Steelbooks, uh, really, of these. But like, like you said, um, Conrad, I go straight for the black and white version. Um, and obviously I rewatched this again uh, yesterday because I watched it when it, I first got it. And what I didn't actually realise, I missed completely the first time, is that they'd actually bothered to animate episode two. So um, when I first got it, I watched it with the surviving episode, like, you know, animated episode one, surviving episode, and then the rest animated. And so I thought, right, okay, let me have a comparison. So I kind of like did two episode two twice, like side by side, just to see like how they'd, you know, compared um, and it was interesting to see, like, you know, how in some aspects they were faithful with camera angles, but in some aspects then they're also doing their own thing. And that's kind of like what, what I like about uh, these animations. They they don't necessarily rigidly stick to as it was on the telesnaps. They are a, they do have a little bit of license there. And I know some fans don't like that, but, you know. Um, and then I'll dip in and have a look at the colour version as well. But usually it's the black and white version I always go to. I launched straight into the colour one. I don't know why. I guess it's uh, I'm a 21st century lass, really. But uh, <laughs> one thing, I mean, my other half, he's not a huge Doctor Who fan, but he's a little bit older than me. And he loved Patrick Troughton because that was his doctor when he was a little boy. He was born in 1962. So um, he uh, and he had very fond memories of Evil of the Daleks. So I hadn't told him that it was coming out and that I'd ordered it. And then when it arrived, I was like, got some wonderful viewing for you tonight, darling. <laughs> and so I put the colour version on and we watched that and we enjoyed it. When I came from home from work the next day, he was watching the black and white version. <laughs> and that was like There's an absolute burst that he's got. Such, you know, he remembered the playful Daleks and, you know, he really wanted to revisit that. So, um, 
But yes, I mean, it's interesting the decisions they make, the differences between the animated episodes and the surviving episode. Uh, the portrait of Victoria Waterfield's mother is much prettier <laughs> in the animated version than, um, <laughs> than the actual portrait that they managed to produce for the real live episode. Um, don't blame them for completely flipping it and redoing it because uh, it wasn't a great portrait. I don't think I'd have recommissioned that artist myself. <laughs> I go straight for the colour version as well. In fact, and I got I did get the steel book for this. I don't normally, but because it was Evil of the Daleks, I knew I'd like it anyway. I splashed out. I actually also went, in fact, I like this story so much, I went to the BFI screening of it as well oh, so i've got to see like it it on was it was screen, fantastic wonderful. yeah it was, yeah see on the big screen it, it held up and it was it was really good so i haven't watched the black and white version yet i probably will next time i watch it um but i always i always go for the color first because i think that's that's kind of what the animate because i i understand watching the black and white version and i do but i think the animators put so much time and effort i'm like okay i'll i'll, I'll watch your big big screen version but yeah, it's great. And I agree with you about that portrait. Because I, I do also watch the surviving episodes and I watched episode two today and I was like, I've forgotten what that portrait looked like. I was like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> there should be different options so you can see different types of portrait, you know, fuzzy felt, digital, you know, just different types <laughs> <laughs> But that's interesting you brought it on Steelbook because it's Eve of the Daleks. It has got such cachet, mm. this movie, hasn't it? Oh, I have yeah. bought yeah, a couple absolutely. of um, steel books recently. I don't know why. I just had a moment of Amazon madness, like everybody does. But I got the um, Galaxy Four steel book and the Flux steel book. So uh, I'm moving into uh, I'm moving into that a little bit. But um, I just got the normal Blu-ray for uh, Evil of the Daleks for some reason. It's a bit the the steel books are, are beautiful things, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm just interested in that. Like you're saying, like because it's Evil of the Daleks, you had to get it on steel, but like, it has got mm -hmm. something special about it. And it really let's, just, let's just dive in. So it's so it starts off with that gorgeous. Um, you know, we, we've got the Doctor and, and Jamie chasing after that a lovely sight, which is the TARDIS, you know, strapped to the back of a van, getting hijacked off, which is a, it's such a great image. Yes, I mean, it perfectly smooth transition from the faceless ones as well and um there they are they're still at gatwick and the tardis has been nicked i mean you know gatwick's a bit close to crawley but they're not all scallywags down there i used to work in crawley <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's um very exciting start you're straight into it um yeah, it's got a very. It's got a. It's, it feels just that because I, I kind of forgot that that was the beginning of it. So so I was kind of sort of shocked to find myself in that sixties, very groovy, very clean sort of the Avengers style. Oh, it's just fab. Yeah, and it's almost like Hartnell-esque, isn't it? The way like one story just like merges into the next one, doesn't it? Which is like you know, kind of like the series kind of like got out of as as it went along, didn't it? Where you could then like. Big Finish would then like like to like slip in like different adventures, and the, the the novels would do the same as well. But this one, you know, you you wouldn't be able to like fit a, a story in between the Faceless Ones and the Evil of the Daleks because literally it's, it's simultaneously like carries on straight away, doesn't it? I, I feel Big Finish would give it a go if they could. <laughs> Don't encourage them. 
<laughs> but the, the 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 thing I didn't realise until I saw this bureau is that um, Ben and Polly were originally supposed to be in episodes one and two. Now I love Ben and Polly, like they're two of my absolute favourite companions, and they suit this so so well. So I kind of I, I I'm going to miss them because I'm going to want them in there, and they'd have been great at all the kind of snooping around the warehouses, that groovy coffee bar, Ben and Polly in it. Mm. I mean, I'm I they miss. They could have left them there, and they'd have been quite happy. They're, they've got jobs there, and it would all, yeah, they start the new Inferno Club. Would been, <laughs> I kind of, I miss them. I, I suppose the benefit is that Jamie gets a lot. Mm, yeah, and yes. I also think if they'd been, if they'd left in episode two, it, they wouldn't have gotten a goodbye scene because I suspect what would have happened is, like I said, either the Doctor and Jamie would have got transported or they'd got left, and they'd at least, yeah, I, I mean, they drop out the faceless ones for quite a long time, but at least they did get to say goodbye. Whether this would have just been. It'd almost been like Dodo again, I suspect. Like mm-hmm. they would just yeah. walked out of shot or something. It wouldn't have been necessarily been a, a goodbye. Yeah, and the audience probably was probably would have been expecting that. Probably would have expecting like Ben and Polly to then try and get back to the Victorian age to then help the Doctor and Jamie. And obviously, if you just lit, left it hanging there, it, it probably wouldn't have <clears throat> played as well, would it? Yeah. And it, it, it feels it feels like a different type of story. That first, it's in chunks, isn't it? Either of the Daleks, it's got very distinct kind of bits to it, um, and it feels very, it feels sort of detectivey. And there's that, that, that the whole that follow that car business, and it's um, it's it's got a very distinct style to it, which I really like. Um, and I think I think the worst is the benefit of, of benefit of ben, ben and Polly not being in that is that it, I mean, Jamie just gets the lion's share of all those lines, and him and Patrick are just their chemistry is phenomenal. Yes, it really is. They're straight in there, and um, there's some wonderful lines about uh, Tardis being a Gaelic word. That's oh, yeah, that's a great yeah. thing. And um, I mean, I was a bit surprised that uh, Jamie has such a good grasp of a uh, white collar crime for a 16th century last you know <laughs> <laughs> oh he's a rogue it reminded me a bit of the animation the cosgrove hall animation for the invasion which i absolutely love the look of that that whole modernist sort of groovy vibe yeah i mean i cannot fault the animation at all even the um you know the black and white or the color they're both uh Really, really perfect, really watchable. The characters are very well realised and um, it's a beautiful thing to look at. I was just going to say, I think one of the things is that the Daleks really suit animation. I, I think that they really get to move smoothly and glide across and things. So I think that they're, they're a very good villain to animate. Mm. Yeah, they, they, and, and I think in this story particularly, they look, they've really figured out how to do it. They're, they're, they've never looked better in, in animation or possibly in you know, in any kind of form, they the, the, move, the movement is incredible. The, you know, the gun sticks always twitching. The eye stalk they've done as well. It's just like I've, they've never looked so good. They they really are the star. Three D rendering, isn't it? Really, really good. Plus the shame that recent um, Doctor Who Dalek YouTube thing that they put together, which looked uh, quite uh, cheap looking in comparison, didn't it? Yeah, this, this this feels like the standard. They they seem to have hit something. The, the, this release seemed to really hit a whole new. I mean, Power of the Daleks was mind blowing. In it's, it's, it's it was just incredible when it came out. But this seems to have really raised the whole bar on it. And I think like the Daleks have got such character in this. It really I and mean, they've got so much character in the story. But the animation really 
really brings them to life. It's beautiful. I think Rob Ritchie and the team have just smashed it. And it makes you think, oh, what else could they do? I think one of the things that really benefits as well is the, like the 3D rendering of the backgrounds and the sets. It really gives you a sense of like what Chris Thompson, who was the designer for the program, did. You know, and there was a lovely like little extra feature yeah, interviewing him because uh, it was one of his first um, proper fully um, programs that he was the main designer on. Uh, you know, and it, it's that great transition. You know, he the 60s stuff looks absolutely wonderful like you said Denise that co- coffee bar is like very very of its time and doesn't look as out of place as if it was like in an episode of the Avengers you know it looks about that 60s um, kind of like vibe and then you've got obviously the Victorian stuff which Chris Thompson says you know the BBC just had like stock um, sets that you could pick and choose and obviously they've got that wonderful location uh, where they you know they filmed in, in obviously the the Victorian house as well. And then you've got the futuristic stuff when they then come to like Scarrow as well. And and it's a simplistic design on Scarrow with the way that the black drapes, but then obviously with that like wire, like frame uh, of the walls and stuff, but it absolutely works. It's, it's brilliant design. And that really comes across in the animation. Sometimes I think in the animations you lose that, but, what the team has, has really done as they've gone along with all these animations is they've really kind of like nailed that um, that rendering of the sets so that, you know, it's not that old cliche of, you know, you used to watch an episode of Scooby-Doo and they'd run past the same thing, like, you know, four <laughs> times in a row, like, which sometimes you got in the early animations because obviously they had a, probably a lower budget than what they do now. And I know they work on a very tight budget anyway. But they've really come into their own in terms of like you know how they do the backgrounds as well now. Yeah, definitely. I know I noticed it particularly in the first episode as they make that transition for the cliffhanger from the old antique shop into that, and then the wall slides back and they go into the control room, and the whole quality of the play, the way the place was lit, completely changed, and that feels kind of a bit different. It. You know, the animation obviously starts off fairly flat, but this one really brought its life. There was a lot of depth and richness in this story, I think. Yeah, because that shot with the house where it swings around and then zooms into uh, the Doctor and Jamie in the room. But like I said, when I saw the BFI, they had a couple of the animators there and they were like, they were really like, yes, please notice that. We're very proud of that. <laughs> so, and rightly yeah. so. Like you say, it's a great, it's them taking some artistic license that works really well. Yeah. And then it's interesting because it's interesting having the episode two as being an existing one because it just then you very quickly get a comparison to what it actually looks like and it's very seamless. Like you can watch from episode one into two, and I do, I don't re, you I very quickly. I mean, to be honest, I think you very f- quickly forget you're watching animation or you just you just get sucked into the story. And then so I, it very seamlessly goes into two. But it's also nice to have all those real references and just feel immediately reassured. Like there's that fantastic shot in the cliffhanger of the Dalek coming behind him when he's in the safe. He opens the door of the safe and this Dalek comes. And when I saw that animation, I was like, well, that's a very lovely shot, lovelies. But that it wouldn't have looked like that. And then it, <laughs> it, 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 it kind of did. I was like, they have absolutely pitched it. Like you said about how much you choose to change or how much you keep the same. I think in this one, they've tweaked it the pit is like perfectly pitched i think because mm, they can go for the ideal 
direction, can't they? Which, of course, they couldn't always do with the schedule that they had and the studio space that they had, you know. And here they can sort of, I want to use a Norwegian phrase there, finpusser then, you know, sort of really polish it up and optimise it in a way that they simply couldn't do with the original. Yeah. It is, it is not, it's so nice that this story, uh, like it's like you're saying, it's so well designed, the actual story, the sets and everything, and then marrying that with the animation at this level, it really gives this some sort of prestige. It feels like a real prestige release. Mm, definitely. And how about the that um, the episode, episode two, when you go, did it, like, I think the one difference I really noticed when watching the telesnaps was the, it's it doesn't feel as expansive. It is quite dark and claustrophobic, you know, lots of real close-ups of eyes, and it's a lot darker and more enclosed. I think that was probably the thing I noticed most about watching the telesnaps. How about you guys? Did you, do you do the telesnaps a bit, or...? I'll I don't really I, I hold my attention when there's a proper animation to watch. I'm sorry, I know. I never really went for the reconstructions and things. If a story no. was lost, you know, I had the novelization, hopefully, or I listened to the audio, but uh, telesnaps, not so much. That's too far for Denise. That's very, very fair. But with the existing episode as well, though, it's interesting to see the difference between that and mm. the similarities and differences. I mean, apart definitely... from Marco Polo, I made an honourable exception for Marco Polo because oh. if only they would animate that, that would make me a happy person. One day. Mm. In glorious technicolour. Yeah, I... I was going to say, I did notice watch, I haven't watched Toe Snaps yet, but I did notice watching the following episode, it does feel more claustrophobic. I think that's partly because I've just gone from widescreen to 4.3, so there's yeah. that as well. But it is, you know, it is. It is tighter. It is there are more, like I said, more close-ups. The way shots are framed sometimes. Um, I mean, yeah, because the director was Derek Martinus. Is that right? Yeah, oh, I got that right. Yeah, and he's you know, I'm trying to think because he did Tenth Planet, this and Spearhead, and I can't think if he did anything else. But he's definitely you know he's definitely one of the best directors of the '60s, I think. And he's paired here with obviously David Whittaker, who for me personally is probably the definite Dalek writer. And I think they had in the sixties by some stretch. So it's just it's just it's a lovely combination. Well, I think it shows obviously how good a director Derek Martinus was because you know there are some probably directors who probably would have struggled working within the limitations of such a small like studio space, which is Lime Grove because Lime Grove, as you know, you see on the photographs, you know, and as they, we keep being told in documentaries, it was absolutely tiny, a tiny place. And the fact that, you know, they got some of the stuff filmed and, you know, some of the, you know, the footage that they got in such a tiny space just speaks volumes just to how talented these people were. So, you know, obviously Derek Martinus is aware of obviously the confined space that he's working in. So he is going to go for those more claustrophobic shots and stuff. And, and it does work in this kind of like context of the story, because this is another brilliant story, like you say, by David Whittaker, where, you know, the Daleks are not just their usual screamy ranty selves. They're, they're conniving, they're suspicious, they're up to something, you know, and it, it it absolutely works, you know, when it's all thrown together, you know, and it, it is such a shame that we don't have the surviving episodes because, uh, you know, it 
these animations obviously are designed to like fill the gaps, but they give us like a taster of just what it would be like to actually see these episodes in question. Um, interestingly, um, when you showed this to your partner, Denise, did, did, mm-hmm. did he have any memories coming back of, of certain individual scenes that he remembered or, you know, was it kind of like, did he find the animation distracting or, or to him was it was like almost as if he was watching the original show again? He, um, I mean, the thing that stuck in his mind, I think he was about five years old when it was on. So, um, he uh, he remembered playful Daleks. He remembered dizzy Daleks, dizzy Doctor, and it meant a lot to him to see it again. But uh, and of course he had a big crush on Debbie Watling. But uh, <laughs> but um, that's another story. Um, so it was good for him to be able to crystallise that. I think, but the other details of it all. Um, I think they must have, because he was very young. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they must have been lost in the mists of time. But, uh, yeah, obviously he thought it was worth a second viewing, and um, he didn't even mind me watching the DVD extras, which he usually, you know, that's what kind of a nerd am I living with kind of thing. But he actually sat and watched some and of them as well. None of us know what you mean, and no one listening to the podcast knows what you mean about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what uh, Mark calls the not we, you know. We, <laughs> he, he's sort of halfway in. He does own a couple of Daleks, you know, but he, he's a sort of semi-we, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was, was interested in what you were saying about the personality of the Daleks, and I think with David Whitaker writing it, you can definitely feel, you know, his his all his knowledge about the Daleks comes into it. And when um, there was a, a pit, a, I think I first noticed this when uh, he the Doctor's told that the time machine runs on static, and he just has a moment and he goes static. Mm. Like and I was thinking, oh right, oh this is a callback to the Daleks. This is oh we're going for the whole history, and and as the story unfolded, I kind of everything kept reminding me i think i was reminded of every single da- dalek story not just past but actually what came after as well like this is such a pivotal story for the daleks it is, definitely very much so and um there's some things in it which almost seem throwaway but they are such a kernel of the doctor's character like when um Waterfield is talking about what will happen with the Daleks if they get the human factor. They'll be super beings and it will mean the end of everything. And the Doctor, he he almost it's almost a throwaway line. It's like, I don't think you really understand the import of what you're saying. But yes, you are completely right. And that is a massive thing for the Doctor to say. And it was an interesting decision that he didn't declaim it loudly in a ranty way which certain other doctors would have done but it's just like you know you're right but you know please don't think about the full implications of what you've said because it'll be too much for you i mean i think what really interests me about this is how it would power the daleks there's this kind of subtext about the differences but and similarities between daleks and humans and here he's just like okay this is going to be text now and just that whole, you know, the, I, I, find, I find his take on the Daleks so interesting because obviously he's so important. Like, so much of what we see here, he's kind of worked out a little bit in the TV21 comics 
Um, yeah. There's like there's like that whole story about the Daleks, one Dalek discovering concept of beauty in there, and that really is very much a play for you know working out of ideas for this. But I, I, his, his concept of Daleks fascinates me so much um, because his idea that I think a Dalek is his idea that uh, what a Dalek is 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 minus the best parts of humans, but also it's not so simple as Daleks, bad humans, good, because obviously you have humans who want to be like Daleks or will work with the Daleks. So it's very much, yeah, like I said, I think he's, he's, he's certainly for me, the, the, the definite, the definitive uh, Dalek writer. I think it, I always find his, there's kind of a sense of dread to his Dalek stories. That I don't think even Terry Nation has, there's always a sense of unease. I can't always pin it down to exactly what it is, but when the Daleks are on screen, and this is, you know, in power as well, there's a sense of just, you're kind of waiting for things to go horribly wrong. Mm. Yeah, I think Terry Nation, he's always um, working on sort of how to combat the Daleks, whereas with perhaps David Whittaker, you're getting more of an understanding of the Daleks and just how... Mm, yeah their real sense of evil they're not just an enemy to be defeated there's there's something more to them and i think maybe david whitaker does have a better grasp of of that yes yeah i mean in a way it kind of yes, goes back to the very first dalek story isn't it which, you know the, the the dislike for the unlike which is the line that uh, i think it's ian says uh with the rational for you know when they're explaining it to the files and the files are saying, well, why don't they like us? Um, and then it's, that kind of, is kind of like dropped then by Terry Nation in subsequent Dalek stories. And the Daleks kind of like just become the generic kind of like evil baddies of the series. And then it, it's interesting that this is kind of like then picked up again by Whitaker, you know, to try and like remind you that, you know, actually, you know, you know, the Daleks aren't just like mindless, um, evil monsters you know there's a there's a cleverness to them you know and something that we hadn't quite seen i think since the very very you know first dalek story you know uh that terry nation wrote because and then obviously terry nation doesn't really kind of like touch upon that again until he's prompted by and poked by barry letts and tone sticks for for genesis of the daleks so it's almost as if like you say you know so the other writers, the people who don't create the things, are sometimes better at, at coming up with ideas for the material uh, than the actual, you know, creators themselves. And I think it's very telling that in Terry Nation's other big success, um, Blake Seven, um, Chris Boucher, the script editor, had a better idea of the series than the creator Terry Nation himself. You know, and some of the best episodes are actually written by Chris Boucher and not by so it's an interesting parallel there yeah definitely and i think also because of this story you know terry nation um terry nation was going to take away the rights so it's like this is going to be the last dalek story it kind of it turns up the stakes on everything they're going to go okay we're doing the ultimate dalek story and i think they push that idea as you were saying of of it's this sort of very the moral complexity of it all and, and the fact they push the Daleks to be as human as they can and all, almost breaking it. You know, the Daleks being, you know, playing trains and all that kind of stuff is really like, ooh, you know, if you, if you put that on TV now, Twitter would just have a meltdown and not be able to cope. You know, like it's really almost pushing the Daleks as far as they can in that way. Mm. And then also pushing the humans and also the Doctor to be as 
dubious and dark as they can be. I think with the humans, it's it's the ultimate, like with Maxtable, when he gets possessed with the Dalek factor and is going, kill, kill, kill. That is really terrifying. But also you've got the Doctor really becoming very there's you know him sitting back and watching jamie and narrating the plot as watching his companion get into trouble is sort of breaking the program a bit and and mm. he, he he starts to even act like at the end i know he's it's a dupe but he's even acting like that and it put me in my i thought of you adam because obviously um, adam here uh, runs the the is part of the real mccoy podcast and there are several points in this story which made me think of mccoy with when i the scene with jamie turning around yeah. the doctor i was like well i know what this is you know how did you find all of yeah that? oh yeah oh it's very pro you can absolutely see this is why i always say when people like well, McCoy's quite manipulative. I'm like, well, have you not seen Troughton? Because I think Troughton's <laughs> a really interesting doctor where for a long time, people's view of him was kind of influenced by the three doctors and then the five doctors where he's a bit more, oh my giddy on. And he's, he's like, and he, yeah, that's a deliberate choice of Patrick Troughton. He's playing it lighter. He, you know, he's not the main star. So he's, he's fitting in to John Pertwee's ego in the three doctors. And then um, just, you know, the five doctors are having fun, but, but actually his doctors a lot darker and, odder and actually bloodthirsty to be honest sometimes and this is a great example of that because yeah like you say we have we see the, the those daleks playing trains and then and, and and the doctor even refers to them as being like children so what does he do in the final episode when there's all these dalek like children who are like innocent he sends them to their death he's like yes go and fight go and kill and it's like i'm like i don't i mean I guess McCoy did blow up Scaro, but that didn't feel so person personal in a way because he's not sending children to do it. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, 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 I'm a big fan of when the Doctor's a little bit dodgy or, you know, it, 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 shades of grey. So I, 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 I love this. And and it's again, it's there actually in Power of the Daleks as well. It's again, it's a Whitaker thing. And I think maybe you get it a little bit in Enemy of the World as well. You know, his Doctor's never quite so straightforward. He sees the bigger picture. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's some nice parallels, isn't there, in the scenes where, like, Jamie really says, I've had enough of you, Doctor, you know, I, I don't like you anymore, that's it, we're through. And there's parallels there, you know, with with um, the Seventh Doctor and Ace as well, and especially toward, you know, the end of Curse of Fenwick, where she's, you know, she yeah. pushes him away, you know, and then he has to, like, reveal, you know, that he's, yes, I did it, you know, but I did it because of this reason, you know, and obviously then Jamie, you know, eventually finds that out. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting now that, you know, you get these parallels like throughout the the, the series, uh, you know, as it goes on. Um, and like I said, with the whole like, um, you know, they probably didn't mean it at the time, but, you know, you get this Dalek civil war, you know, with the human Daleks, you know, against like, you know, standard Daleks and then that's kind of then repeated uh, you know in the 80s stories when you've got the Davros faction mm. of Daleks against like the you know the, the Scaro Daleks and then you've got that civil war then that happens as well you know which again leads to something like you know catastrophic like you say the, the destruction of Scaro with the Doctor being quite ruthless again by sending the hand of Omega to you know to blow up Scaro just as he sends these human Daleks we're all like quite innocent and you know naive, and he's like, "Go on, off you go, kill the emperor." <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see him rabble rousing at the end like that. It's great, you know. It's like he's like, go on, do that, ask questions. He's like, like he just goes full. His, it's the revolution. Let's do this. He's absolutely like, ask questions. Go on, go go in there. <laughs> Literally go in there and blow up the emperor. It's, it's amazing to see him in full. There's a war doctor right there. Mm. And he keeps that kind of manipulative streak into the into Tomb of the Cybermen, actually, as well, because there's, a, you know, people have said, and they're quite right, it's the Doctor who basically finds a way to open the tombs, ideally because he's curious, and arguably gets a lot of people killed because of it. So it's kind of, it is an interesting thing in Troughton that I think sometimes gets forgotten. There's this, definitely, he's not all, oh my giddy aunt. You know, there's a, there's a, he's a, definitely a darker side to him. Yeah. And it's interesting that he that, that Troughton suggested that this story should would should be adapted into a movie, and which is a, another kind of again, it's, I think it talk, talks to the stakes of this story. It's like it's 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 almost like all of Doctor Who in one story because you get so much. You get the sixties modern groovy stuff. You get some historical stuff. Then you get some outer space stuff, and it is sort of ripe for for being like having that kind of treatment but there's it but it's but this story is a seven parter and i'm wondering like does that i i think there are parts of this story that could do with a bit of a pair of scissors <coughs> episode four. <coughs> okay jason's coming in hot with episode four <laughs> interesting that is that, uh, episode four is camel and jamie in the house of traps having a scrap yeah, and obviously Troughton's gone off on uh, on his holidays for the week, yeah. <laughs> which you is kind of like you would, you don't really notice that in a lot of um, like uh, second Doctor stories because it, it's not as noticeable as it is in like most of the Hartnell era, mm-hmm. where you know <laughs> William Hartnell used to have like you know go off on his jollies for a couple of weeks and then then um, you know Jacqueline, oh I've forgotten what and that, that Hill. name is now Hill. Hill, yeah, Jacqueline Hill would like then go off and then come back. Um, I think is it the Keys of Mariner? She comes back with a tan. <laughs> she's been to she's been to like you know Spain for a week. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think sombrero, the straw donkey, and the bottle of tequila. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we mentioned that in the Keys of Mariner's podcast we did a while back. You know, but yeah, you know, it's the, I think the writers get around it a lot better in the second Doctor era than what they do in the first where they a lot of them are still finding their feet but yeah um watching it again episode four was a real slog uh this time and you know it, if you needed to trim it down and i think it would be an and a marvelous six-parter you know that would be the first bit i would like be condensed down you can easily condense that down to like being a bit in episode three and then you know sprinkle a bit in episode five and just get rid of episode four completely Interesting. Big pair of scissors going here. Anyone else? Kind of, what would anyone else like to trim from that? I, 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 I don't disagree, really. I think it is the stuff in the house that could, if you're going to lose an episode or tighten it, that's where you do it. Because otherwise, because then you have quite a nice structure of two episodes in modern modern day London, two, two in the Victorian house, two on Scarrow, roughly. And that works. But yeah, no, the, the Jamie doing the crystal maze thing, it does, it, it's fine. And maybe it might even if we had the episode, it might be a bit better, but it, you know, the animations are very good, but sometimes the fights, uh, you know, it, it's not the strongest area for, for, for the animation, the fist fights. So yeah. I, I, I tend to zone out in fight scenes anyway, you know, it's always like the most 
least interesting point of any TV show for me. You know, just uh, if there's a movie with a long battle scene, I will take a power nap while the battle scene is on. I'm it's, it's just how I am. But uh, I mean, you know, the character of Kemal, I'm not really sure what his overall purpose was in the series. So maybe he could have gone. But um I think seven parts, that's unusual. Are there many other seven part stories? But uh, should it have been a six that they padded out or was it an eight which they cut down? I guess we'll never know. I mean, I think you could also easily lose the characters of Ruth and uh, Arthur as well because they, they really feel like padding. Like, I, I'm still not sure what the point of Ar- of Arthur, was it Terrell? It is like, mm-hmm. with, okay, obviously he's being controlled by the Dalek but it's never explained why when no one else is and I don't know it's supposed to parallel something or be and and Ruth just turns up and apparently hasn't noticed the Daleks going around her father's house and it's just <laughs> all like, her boyfriend oh. is magnetic yes all her boyfriend doesn't drink or eat anymore <laughs> I mean I just, would notice just like, if the other half was magnetic you know there was that yeah. rumour about the um, Covid vaccinations wasn't there that it meant that you know you could stick a spoon <laughs> to your forehead and things like that we did try that it was a right load of old nonsense but yeah i've just got an image of them sitting down to dinner and it's like oh yeah past the you know the cutlery just stuck to him just whizzing <laughs> the table. perhaps um, she always thought he had a magnetic personality oh, oh <laughs> there we go that's brilliant it's like, it's like mark is here it's like mark is here that's a contractual well i have to say like i i think the first time i watched it I think I found that whole kind of game of traps and Kemal and Jamie, I was like, I wasn't sure on it. But actually, when I rewatched it again, I think I would have taken I was like, actually, I think my big pair of scissors goes to um, Terrell. And and I mean, I love Windsor Davis turning up and doing all that. But that whole business of mm-hmm. to like kidnapping someone, taking him to the barn and then roughing them up a bit. Like that whole business. I was like, mm-hmm. who's this dude again? Like, it's Terrell. It's Terrell. I, was just, I just was like, sorry, who are you again? Like, I just kept... Mm-hmm losing i just he was i really didn't need his character in there i think yeah you're not wrong i mean i'm i'm a simple soul and i tend to accept things as they are you know and take a power nap if it's not really for me but uh yeah you're, you're absolutely not wrong from a narrative point of view they they would not diminish the story if they weren't there I was just going to say they'll probably get on a big finish box set by the end of the year. But, uh, <laughs> oh, imagine that. Uh, uh, the Avengers of Arthur Tyrrell, the magnetic man, just... <laughs> From the world of Doctor Who. That sounds good. I think that's a, I think that's a good one. So at the, at the end of this game of traps, of course, is to find uh, Victoria, who they make the new companion. What do... What, what's... Because I, I, I had never... I don't know. I, for some reason, I never really... Um, clicked with Victoria until I watched The Abominable Snowmen and I was suddenly like, oh, she's amazing. But I never really sort of got into it. What does everyone make of Victoria generally and in this, her first, her debut story? Debut, not debut. I think she's lovely, actually. Um, I did meet her at a convention in the 80s as well. So, um, and she did an enormous scream for everybody. Um, (sighs) very glamorous lady um yeah i mean she's beautiful she's sweet um some of her costume choices are a bit questionable i mean uh, mini skirts weren't really for her the one she's wearing in web of fear that's 
not splendid from but um yeah i mean she's beautiful she's sweet she has a nice story arc i think well considering she's like from the victorian age she she basically doesn't um you know waste any time from going straight from evil of the daleks in a victorian dress to going straight into the miniskirt at the beginning of the two months after men she's straight in there isn't she you know that newfound liberation She's loving it. Um, Victoria as a character, I think, is mainly because uh, originally, you know, back when, obviously, I started discovering the second Doctor era, um, probably a lot of her era was missing more than it was with the, you know, the trio of the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe. So I always, like, preferred Zoe more because there's much more of season seven, you know, around or released than there was of series five. But I think since we've had the recovery of like all, all like the Web of Fear bar episode three, and then obviously uh, enemy of the world, um, you know, she's really, um, you know, gone up in my estimations as a companion. And, uh, you know, she, she is, uh, she was a lovely actress. She always kind of came across in the extras and stuff, you know, as, as a wonderful, you know, ambassador for the show as well. So, you know, Victoria really grew on me, you know, the more that it kind of, we kind of like rediscovered like that season five as uh, we, you know, we managed to get like more of it, you know, recovered. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm similar in the sense that I do have a slight preference for Zoe. Um, I just like companions who can, I think her Zoe's relationship with the doctor is great. The way they try and slightly outdo each other on mm. things, uh, which I, I really like. Um, but it's, it's, it's nothing against Victoria, certainly. And, and, you know, she's, she's fine. I mean, she's kind of almost the, the clap when people, cause you know, people go, well, you know, two companions in the original series were all screaming and falling over and you go, no, they're not. And then you're like, well, there was Victoria. Um, it's <laughs> possibly a little bit unkind, but, I mean, she 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 fits this story perfectly. You know, she's very much the damsel in distress. There's no, you know, there's not really a moment where she does a companiony thing, as such. But you know, I I always sometimes wonder, like, would it be interesting if Molly had become the companion? But I don't think that was ever on the uh, <laughs> on on the cards. Um, but should. Yeah, no, I, I don't dislike her, but I, I almost don't really have a strong opinion on her. I mean, I do like the bit in Fury from the Deep where, where she when she's about to leave and she's basically like, this is terrifying. Our lives are terrifying. I don't want to be terrified anymore. And I, <laughs> I, I, Maybe it's having lived through the past, you know, two years. I'm like, yeah, I really, really know what you mean. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I like she's in a lot of stories I like. I just I just I just have a slight preference for Zoe. I think it's nice that, you know, they they didn't do good contrast with the characters. So we went from Polly, very modern girl, to Victoria, who was complete opposite. And then again to Zoe from the far future, absolute genius, very, very self-confident. Um, I think that, that was a nice combination of three female characters in the Troughton era, for sure. And you've got the revelation of the extras, which is something I never knew about, is that obviously... Um, she was recast, wasn't she, Victoria? She was originally going to be portrayed mm. by uh, Denise Buckley, a completely different mm. actress. But um, she wasn't um, small enough and cute enough, apparently. Yeah, yeah. The curse of Denise's throughout the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I really hope they didn't tell her that when when they paid her off. And they're like, "You're not small or cute enough." In the road. <laughs> the, the little I've seen of the world of acting, they would have absolutely said that to their faces. There's it's like, that's, yeah, if they, that's they, true. Or just not, or just not called them. That's probably <laughs> that's usually how it goes. Um, and what do we think of our um, villain uh, of the piece, uh, Maxtable? Um, who played by Marius Goring? They, they they went through a few big name uh, casting. You know, they definitely looked at a few a few big ones. But they, the, Marius Goring was like huge, very well respected. He's in A Matter of Life and Death, and he's and he, you get the sense that this is somebody sort of taking the part with both hands and really running with it. With his enormous. Chops. Oh, he's having fun. Yeah, he, he's having so much fun, and and yeah, visually he's so striking as a character because, like I said, he's got the the huge beard and and this and you know this is where he likes a cigar when he's talking to the doctor, and uh, yeah, no, he's just he, he's one that he's one of those great great guest villains. Mm. Yeah, and he's got this one delusion that the Daleks are actually going to keep their promise and give him the secret of alchemy, and uh, you know he's so driven by that and. I mean, it's greed, isn't it? You know, but uh, yeah, he's um, he's an interesting character, and with um, Waterfield as well. Yeah they're, yeah, they're a great combination. I mean, I suppose you know they could theoretically have made Waterfield the villain of the piece, who'd but he was just sort of coerced into it all through misfortune, and so Victoria ended up where she did, rather than have her own father do that to her. There had to be another patriarch in the picture to do it. Yeah. I can imagine Robert Holmes would have had fun writing those two. He would have made something out of that, I imagine. The sort of gentleman and then the sort of big kind of gruff, you know, mad professor with his... And also there's that whole weird scene where Maxtable makes Kemmel bend an iron bar and, like, break a wooden thing. I was just like, what's that for? Um, well, the, I Dalek, the, the Dalek opinion. was supposed to be watching, but the Dalek was in the cabinet. So unless his eye stalk was sticking <laughs> out, which I don't think it was, then um, <laughs> I don't really I, understand. I'm not saying there's a subtext. The could have seen it from oh. the Gothic cabinet. Adam, did you just say text? Maybe I don't. I don't know. He just wanted this man, to t- this muscular man, to take off his clothing and. Uh, pose for him i think ultimately i think it was like yeah yeah the darts were like why are you showing me this and he's like no no it's gonna be great it's gonna be great you really want to see this it's like so it's like not really bothered he's like no no trust me trust me <laughs> it's gratuitous you'll love it yeah half our audience will love this take my word for it yeah no mm. <laughs> one thing i loved about the laboratory i love a lab laboratory if you're gonna have a lab i want to see bubbling test tubes and all of that business so the lab <laughs> That lab ticked all my boxes. I loved it. And um, also, what I really, really loved was—I mean, the doors are a bit obviously because the Daleks sort of get to those doors. So constantly, you've got those swing doors of Daleks mm. kind of trundling Hospital in. Doors, That's, restaurant doors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit—it's a bit like Julie Walters' soup sketch a little bit when they come through the <laughs> swinging doors. But. <laughs> Imagine the, the Dalek with a massive ladle comes in for a whole two soup sketch. Um, but the, um, the actual box itself, I really loved it. And the, the designer, um, sorry, you said his name earlier. And I, Chris, oh, Thompson. Chris Thompson. Chris Thompson, thank you. Um, he said he wanted that to be, the cabinet, to be um, like a gothic version of the police box. And I thought that was a really nice, a really that's where a design can really elevate the story because you've got all this kind of... Um, 
the sort of mixing up of good and evil and you know the doctor and humans being evil and daleks being good having an evil version of the tardis in the story just as the design piece i think it's just one of those examples where if, if just pushing the design a bit more and really putting thought into it really helps the story you've got an evil tardis there as well in a way yeah well i mean obviously because i mean chris thompson talks in, in one of the extras how he was kind of like the apprentice to raymond cusack uh, and how he says like how like um, blunt Raymond Cusack was sometimes, and used to send him to the meetings instead of like because he couldn't be asked turning up to him. But it's kind of like it, it is good because you see that parallel of Thompson designing like you know shapes and corridors and, and like you say that, that those doors um, for the Daleks. Um, rather than it just be a standard door, very similar to the way that Raymond Cusack did the corridors on Scarrow, you know, in the very first, like, you know, Dalek story. You know, they are shaped for the Daleks, they're not shaped for humans, you know. So it's kind of like there's an interesting parallel there that, you know, and I don't know whether Chris Thompson did it deliberately or whether he's just like kind of like subconsciously picking up on that because he worked with, you know, Cusack in the past and, yeah. you know, he's then picking up that mantle. Yeah, I think that was, that sounds right, and it is it is again it is that it I think it is exactly right. I think all those threads you can draw directly from the Daleks right through to this and uh, and beyond really. And then and in fact and then of course they're off to well Max Maxwell calls it Scaros at one point. He's gone full sci-fi. <laughs> he, does, he does quite a few Billy fluffs though, doesn't Metabolist he? Metabolist free. Anyway, he... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's off to Metabolis next to Scaros. Uh, um, and that, and that is, I think, uh, Adam, when you said earlier about the TV twenty one, the you know comics, I think you're absolutely right because basically the story, he you know he then goes, okay, we're fully going into TV twenty one comic land now, and it's for that final couple of episodes. What do we think of all of that? Well, I mean, we're talking about the, how good the design is. That Emperor Dalek design. I mean, it's nothing like the TV. 21 comics which i think is good because as great as that design is i think on screen it would look i would mean, be highly impractical i think the dialogue would just topple over to be honest with a big <laughs> head but the, the the tv emperor is such a nice bit of design it's it is it does just tower over everything and mm. the voice the way they do that voice as well i i don't know what else they do to it but it booms so effectively yeah, that's one thing that David did say about it. One thing that he remembers from watching the show at the end when there is the Emperor Dalek, it made absolutely perfect sense to his five-year-old brain that there would be an Emperor Dalek behind everything. That there would, it's not just individual Daleks, that there would be a controlling force there. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Um, and the, the, the doctor says, "Oh, I wondered when we'd meet you, or we meet at last, or something like that." As if, like, mm-hmm. ah, we finally meet. Like he's been behind everything, you know, sort of thing. Can I just say, in John Peel's novelization, that Dalek is the Dalek that kills Davros at the end of Genesis. I don't know why that's stuck in my head. It just has always so up for all these years. <laughs> there are shocked-looking faces. I didn't know that. That actually is now. I need to go home and think about uh, think about that. That's that's huge. <laughs> I never managed to get hold of the novelization because it, it sold like hotcakes and it was back in the day when you didn't get like internet like notifications that something was due for release. It was just potluck if you were in Forbidden Planet and you, you saw it on the, the bookshelf. <laughs> so I, I never I, I was, to read the novelization. I didn't know that. That's, that's a nice little tie in that. It's interesting because I think he does try and generally tie in the the post well, the post Avril stuff. I think trying to bring it all together, you know, because John Peel was so keen on Terry Nation's vision. 
and because I believe Tony Nation actually wasn't that keen on David Whittaker's scripts either, so it's quite at least that's the rumor anyway. But it's um, so it's interesting. But yeah, it's it's just one thing I remember. I don't I remember the novelization, obviously I remember the story, but that bit it, it's right at the beginning. You have this if I if I'm remembering correctly, and it has been it was like ninety six when I read it. Um, there there was something like you, you start off it, and it's the Emperor Dalek at the beginning of the book and. It, it mentions that, that he was the Dalek that first uh, first killed Davros. Wow, that's amazing! Every day's a learning day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then fairly soon, you've got that. I mean, you got we've talked about the Doctor kind of rabble rousing, you know, a Dalek civil war, which is amazing to see him doing. There, there's so many like incredible visuals. That whole sequence, those whole couple of episodes, are absolutely legendary. It does feel like we're going to just burn this program to the ground. We're doing everything now. We're doing the big, the big one. It, it feels almost like, and, and even like the one point the doctor says, you know, he, he he's considers taking them to another universe or even, or, or even because it's more impressive, his home planet. You know, that's how big the stakes are. That's it's like, they are, put, it sort of feels like I can see why this story is so sort of well loved by fans. Cause it's really pushing all these big epic mythic kind of, Yes, very much so. It's um, not just on the big scale, but also on a subtle level as well. It's uh, it really is. Um, it's one of those key stories that is absolutely at the heart of the myth and the legend that is Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think there's there's a kind of parallel universe where um, this was the last Dalek story because. It could have been. And I, I mean, I find it hard, even if they hadn't come back in the 70s, to think that John Nathan Turner wouldn't have brought them back in the 80s at some point. Um, but it's it's not impossible to imagine they, they could have gone, OK, no, we've done that now. We've got the side men and we just won't bring them back. And it's not I mean, Dal- the Daleks are fascinating because they've got a lot of stories that could serve as their final story more than any other dot two monster, I think. Um, and this is the f- you know, even their first story, technically they're all defeated at the end, but this is like the first big epic and that's it. It's definitely the end. They're almost certainly not coming back. See you in five years, guys. Yeah. And what was it? I, 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 I gather that the, um, in the think the designer, Chris Thompson said that, no, no, it was, uh, the, sorry, who had to direct it? John, uh, Coombe, Timothy Coombe, uh, had to direct the final sequence while Derek Martinez get on with got with everything else. And he said he got the phone call saying, no, change the plan, don't kill them at the end. There's got to mm-hmm. be something. Yeah. And he said that they did it by putting a light on in the, a sort of a pulsing heartbeat of a light into the Emperor. But in the animation, they go for the Daleks' eye stalk sort of slowly lifting. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. the real one was or what the, what's the deal there? I always thought it was the Dalek eye stalk, to be honest. But that's just what I've heard. But obviously, it's memory. Yeah, different memories. I remember reading, and I don't know where I, I kind of read it. Whether it was in the, one of the um, old, like Andrew Pixley production archives and stuff. I, I could have sworn I read something that they then filmed something where it was one of the like little like Dalek, you know, mutant claws, like just like you know, scurrying somewhere, and they they'd shot that and said so when i was like watching the the special features and 
Timothy Coon was saying, well, you know, suddenly we had to panic because, you know, we'd filmed all our shots, we killed them off, and then, you know, Sidney Newman and Innis Lloyd, like, give us the phone call to say, don't do it, you know, show something just in case as a, a little insurance policy. And then, so I always thought it was a, like, you know, you, you saw part of the mutant move or something. But So I was quite surprised that he was saying that it was like the throb of, a, like, a, the light near the uh, the Emperor Dalek to suggest that the Emperor was still alive. But then, obviously, like you say, in the animation, they've got the eye stalk instead. So, um, you know, and obviously not being a fan of the telesnaps, I'm not sure what the telesnaps show. I should admit, I'm, I'm going to go straight back to those telesnaps. It's one of <laughs> the telesnaps. It's one for the listeners. Go back <laughs> yeah, to the telesnaps, yeah. folks. Yeah. Everyone's going to sit in quietly now while I just watch telesnaps. That would be great. <laughs> but, and you get, you. what's lovely about this, the, uh, the uh, Blu-ray as well, is that you get um, all of those amazing extras and stuff. So it's, it's particularly about making that battle, which is the, which I hadn't realised. Um, it was the first sort of, time that the bbc visual effects department really came in and took over from shawcraft and yeah and yeah. boy what a start i mean what a start to really show what they could do um you know because like you said um shawcraft had, had been the the go-to company before that so um I, you know and i think i remember reading this somewhere i think there's a there's a great book um i'm not sure if i still have it somewhere but it's called visual effects that is written by i think matt irvine um, and the I one with celebrity on the front cover. Yeah, and I think it was Jack Klein who was who's head of the um, uh, the visual effects department. Kind of like instructed them to like you know let's bring Doctor Who in house because you know we've got the facilities to do it. Why are we paying another company to to do this? Um, so yeah, the, those epic shots. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, they did look use the the Louis Marx Daleks for a lot of shots, but you know it's. It's interesting that one of the fans' interviews said he was quite disappointed because he spotted it straight away because he had some Louis Marks darlings mm-hmm. that he played it right next to him. But to the average viewer, I think if you're watching it on a small black and white TV in mm-hmm. 1967, I don't think you would have noticed that or, or clicked. And I think, you know, that effects work that you see in the surviving footage looks absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, Denise, your partner as a kid watching that kind of stuff. It was just, that's just a dream, you know, watching mm-hmm. that kid. There's like, like you said, like, there's the end, there's the king of the Daleks and there's Daleks yeah. fighting each other. It's just like, it is so exciting. It's. But just going back to something, and this is something that I, I realised, um, obviously with, with my son himself, he's like, I think as a kid and whether or not you guys agree with me or not, when you're a kid, you don't know the difference between a good effect and a bad effect because you are watching the programme, you're involved in the storytelling. And it was interesting that, um, you know, my lad... Apologies for a police car going past there. Um, He had his dinosaur phase when he was about, um, you know, three to five, like all kids do. And he used to watch religiously, like, stuff like... um, the Disney movie Dinosaur, Jurassic Park, and the Doctor Who story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which at the time was my favourite John Pertwee story. But then when you've watched it 50 times in a row, <laughs> you kind of like go off it. But it was interesting because through his eyes, he didn't spot that the dinosaur effects in there were different from that million-dollar budget movie 
to him, it, it was, there's the T-Rex in Doctor Who, there's the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, and to him, they were one and the same. And I noticed it's only as he's become older, and he got to about nine, and we watched the first King Kong, the original King Kong, 1933, and that was the first time he kind of went, oh, you can tell it's a puppet, can't you? And it's interesting, obviously, because he's got older, then, you, you know, he's kind of like brain starts to see the difference mm-hmm. in effects. But I think if you were five years old watching that, and I remember when I used to watch Doctor Who, I never used to go, oh, the effects were rubbish. For me, it was the effects were in, say, the invasion of time or the robots of death or, you know, the stones of blood or anything like that were as good as what they were when I went to the cinema to see Star Wars. You know, for me, there was no difference. You know, and I think it's only as you get older that you start to see it through more critical eyes. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got parents by your side pointing it out to you as well, that that helps a lot. But Yeah, it's like when I, I went to... I remember watching, um, not the two, but Star Trek Next Generation when it started showing on was BBC Two, I think, was it 1990? Yeah. And watching that, being about nine years old, watching that for the first time with my parents and being like, thinking, yeah, it looked fantastic, et cetera, et cetera. And then a few years ago, I finally sat down and watched, and yeah, I enjoyed it. But I was like, oh, the effects in this are actually a lot ropier, or at least they're a lot, actually not that far from what they were doing, say, contemporarily in the McCoy or the Colin Baker era. They're just shot on film, so they look a bit more expensive. But I was like, oh, that's a soundstage, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, at the time, didn't click. Didn't click at all. But, you know, I think you're right. I think kids don't notice. And then, you know, you get older, you notice. But I think usually at a certain point, you move beyond that. And you're like, oh, I don't care. Yeah. No, it's it's of its time. And it's um, some some things work. Sometimes there are still effects that are absolutely magical, regardless how old something is. It, I mean, look at... The Wizard of Oz, for example, you know, that is 1939, you know, and the Flying Monkeys and the Surrender Dorothy and the arrival of the Good Witch and all of those things, you know, even the glittery slippers, they're still absolutely perfect, absolutely spot on. If you watch them today, they're still fresh and vibrant. And um, we're spoiled these days, aren't we? Because pretty much everybody's got a massive TV and high definition and Blu-rays and choice of movies to stream. But uh, if something worked when it was made, there's really no reason because human beings, optic nerves haven't evolved (laughs) since then. (laughs) You know, we can still, we can still appreciate it. And I think um, Evil of the Daleks, yes, there's models, there's little wobbles and things like that. And, how did that Dalek get up onto that floor of the house? You know, he was going to ask these questions, but uh, the magic is still there. Yeah, I, I never asked myself how the Daleks got upstairs at all. I didn't even think to. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been a lift somewhere. I know, it's, it's Mr. Magnet's upstairs. He's given them a lift. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's, That's what his why point why is. That's why he's there. That's up become son. Yeah. Whoop, there right. we go. That's in my head, Canon Mel. I love it. <laughs> That's official. Um, and so, so I, I think the visual effects of the the big battle were probably some of my favourite bits of the extras. How and there's there's tons of extras on this on this. We're spoiled for choice on this. Uh, what what did we all enjoy and dig into on this? I, think well, I always think it's nice to like have a good brand new documentary, which obviously you know the story would never have had because it's never had a 
a proper release before. You know, I think the nearest we came to it was the the, the compilation of the the model footage, which was originally on the I think the Lost in Time set. Um, yeah. So I really enjoyed the half hour, um, you know, making of documentary, and it is a bit of a shame that you know that we haven't got you know as many surviving members of you know the production team and the cast with us. You know, um, so it was kind of like very much led by you know, Fraser Hines and, and Timothy Coon, um, who, are, who are, you know, thankfully still with us. Um, but he still gives a lovely insight. And I'll, I, I've always loved uh, behind the scenes and, and making of documentaries, mm. you know, ever since, I, you know, I saw the, the making of yeah. uh, Star Wars, you know, when it was shown on like, ITV. It was like, wow, you know, you know. So I, I've always been interested in how, like, television and film is made. So I like that. And the, the nice... Um, interview with chris thompson as well you know who's a guy i don't think has been interviewed much or um i've never once i think seen he's he's been interviewed in doctor Who magazine or anything like that so it was nice to like you know hear from him and that he was like um a protege of raymond cusack and you know kind of like used to be sent along because um raymond didn't want to go to another meeting with verity lambert um, so he, he sent him along and he like, just take notes because I can't be asked to turn it up to And it's always lovely when they take Fraser Hines back to the location and let him run around and do his thing because, uh, you know, he's he's got a great sense of humour and <laughs> he, he remembers all the good anecdotes. And um, so it's, a, it's a very, it's a fun making of, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's sad there's not so many people around, but it does make them a little more creative in who they find to interview. So it's, you know, it, it's nice to hear those voices. And I, I'm I'm a big sucker for, for raw studio footage. Uh, it's it's one of the things. It's like when Get Back came out with the Beatles. I'm, I, you oh, know, I was like, wow, I was yeah. like, who? who? But, but me, I was like, nine hours of the Beatles. I don't know. But then I'm I'm the guy going, ooh, how? Ooh, like four hours of Castro Valva raw studio footage. That will do me for this evening. <laughs> so like, oh yeah, that's distinctly less interesting than Paul McCartney writing Get Back. But there we go. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating to see the you know the models, and I, I love the fact they put the old audio book on there as well with the, the yes. Tom Baker narrated one because I haven't heard that one. I've heard, like I said, I the one I have is the phrase was the Fraser Hines narrated one, which I think they use for the telesnaps in this one. Um, so I, I and I love that doing that with the with the audio books and stuff. It's like um on the series eighteen Blu-ray set, State of Decay. They, they've got the Tom Baker read um target novelization thing it's about an hour and i i love i i just i love how much of an archive they make these things mm, yes yeah they really really do max it out for us don't they so. yeah because when you think about it, you you we are spoiled for choice you've literally got four versions of this story which i don't think is as many as shard has currently got before you know <laughs> it, it's damn close you know you've got your black and white animation you've got your color animation you've got like you say that the 1992 audio book and then you've got the telesnaps reconstruction you know so, so you are spoiled for choice you know you, you know you could watch this you know four times over and then you can watch it all again with all the various commentaries that you've got you know with uh, toby hadoki doing his his usual you know 
excellent work, you know, moderating. Um, you know, they really do. I think do David would pack his bags and leave if I ever watched a Doctor Who story with audio commentary in his presence. <laughs> I think that would be a step too far for him. <laughs> you know, he'll do anything for love, but you won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Meatloaf. Having a moment. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree. We're, we're, we're very, very sport for choice with these. I think with, um, I mean, Adam, if you if, if you love all of the, uh, you know, uh, behind the scenes footage, and as a McCoy fan, when the season twenty four box set came out, I'm surprised you probably went missing for three months. I imagine. I- I'm actually buying the re-released Blu-ray sets because I originally when they first ever first came out, you know, they I didn't have much money, so I couldn't afford it, and then they you couldn't. You know, I couldn't get them for less than two hundred pounds. So I was like, uh, and I, since they re-released them, but no, I'm looking forward to the the the, 20, uh, the yeah, looking forward to season twenty four when it's re-released, which I'm hoping might be at some point at the end of this year. So that's my Christmas sorted. You know, just <laughs> endless raw footage. They have. I mean, I, I I like a bit of studio footage, but I think with that one, I was like, I've. I mean, you could lose days and days. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. There are days worth of, of, of like footage on that one. No, we're, we're, we're very spoiled. But this is, but this uh, since since uh, you know uh, Mark and everyone re- like reviewed the vinyl of this a couple of years ago. Um, so we've had the news about these animations that uh, that BBC America have pulled the. There's there you wish you could see the screen viewer. There are winces. There are. It's pained expressions. Um, so BBC America have pulled the uh, funding for this. So what do we what do we make of that? What do we, is that the final end, or is there going to be? How do we think this is going to pan out? Obviously, we can only guess, but well, what do we reckon is going to happen with the future of the animations? I mean, the people behind them have always said it's a bit like actually classic. Who they've always said that the money's tight and they've never had much time for a turnaround. That's been like when I went to the BFI, that was one thing that really came across clearly. They were talking about going, yeah, we just we just managed to get it in and it's like when power of the daleks first came out and you later hear that they were literally waiting you know formatting it like an hour before they had to hand it over because they were that <laughs> tight to the bone so i think i i i mean i presume that they must have done all right for the blu-ray sales because they kept, they've kept releasing them but i i wonder if they weren't worried they were going to run out of you know of stories people want like could they get people to buy the smugglers or the space pirates, which is nothing against those stories, but like you could probably do a Dalek master plan, but would you have to split that up over two sets? Cause that's, a, you know, that's 13, 12 episodes. Um, I don't know. I, I, it depends if they can get funding somewhere else. And the most obvious people to me would be Britbox. Yeah. Yeah. But, and Bitbox have done some original dramas, which no one talks about. So I feel like they'd be better off um, doing doing the animated Doctor Who. But again, then if they did that, they'd probably want the animated Doctor Who just on them for a while. Like they probably wouldn't. Yeah, there might be more of a delay before it came out on Blu-ray. Mm. Uh, well, well, I think I would crowdfund the hell out of that. You know, I yeah. would part with. I would part with cash to say like, yes, please animate this story for me. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it's bigger than that, isn't it? Because you can only imagine how many millions of pounds these animations actually cost. And if BBC America isn't going to show them anymore, then yeah, that's a big source of the income gone. But um, I think it's one of those things where you really, really want it to happen. And you hope, a solution can be found, whether it's a 
I don't know, some sort of collaboration with Big Finish and Britbox, like you say, or, you know, maybe even get Netflix or someone like that involved. It's there. There are a lot of potential actors out there, at least. I think the benefit is that there's enough fans out there who would be more than willing to not probably necessarily do the work for free, but, you know, they'd, they'd pick up the mantle and, you know, they'd do it, you know, perhaps at a little bit of a cost-cutting price, you know, but there's plenty of fans out there, I think, who would, you know, eagerly, like, you know, um, animate perhaps, like, you know, the survive, the missing two episodes of The Crusade so we could get a full, complete, you know, season mm. two box set, you know, out. Um, I think I'm optimistic. And the reason why I'm optimistic is because of Russell T. Davis and Bad Wolf Productions and their recent deal with Sony, um, which we know is going to bring millions into the show. Um, you know, Russell T. Davis has talked about um, you know, making a, a multiverse, making the Disney Plus style version of Doctor Who, where you know it's multiple series. You know, you've got your main series, which will go out on BBC One, and then we're gonna, we, you know, it deserves to have these spin-offs. You know, it deserves to have like a, a perhaps an eleventh Doctor and tenth Doctor meetup miniseries, which apparently is, believe the rumours, that's what the sixtieth anniversary is going to be. However, I digress, but I think if he sees the opportunity and goes, right, do you know what? If it's going to be a fraction of the money that, you know, Sony and Bad Wolf uh, have got that we're plowing into Doctor Who to make it, you know, this big, huge um, success again, you know, because we're all aware that the viewing figures have dipped a little bit, you know, and, you know, things have you know, perhaps gone off the boil a little bit with certainly regards to the merchandise and everything. But if he sees that opportunity, I think he will gladly, you know, siphon off a little bit of that money and go, there you go, guys, finish it all off, you know. Because, you know, he's a fan at the end of the day, and I think with the the millions that you're seeing rumoured that are going to be invested because of their deal with Sony and, you know, signing off, um, you know, BBC Worldwide and, and Bad Wolf going into co-production now for the next generation of Doctor Who, then uh, I think we might just, um, you know, see some more animations, hopefully, in the, in the future. I don't think it's the end. I don't think it's the final end. Wonderful thought, really. I mean, that is one of the advantages about having people with such a genuine love for the show making the show. I was just going to say, I think some of those millions will probably go to making sure they get David Hen- Tennant's hair correct if he comes back, because we don't we don't want another day of the Doctor-style disaster. Um, but I, I will say one thing. I think if they have animations, that might mean we start getting uh, 60s box sets, because I think one of the reasons people have been like, why haven't they done one yet? And I, I always thought, well, probably because they're doing the animations, and because the animations cost so much to make, they want to make their money back, so they're probably it will have increased the amount the cost of the box set but they'll make more if they sell it individually and now i'm just like oh i wonder could we could we get like in the 60th anniversary year could we get the first Hartnell season you know mm. and maybe they'll just use like telesnaps and things to recreate marco polo um i said there are just telesnaps marco polo but hopefully there are um but yeah it's just thought i do wonder if we might now see like a, a, tra- a Hartnell or a trout box set 
on the horizon because they included the animation for Sharda in the Series 17 box set, and that really surprised me. I didn't think they were going to do that at all, but now they've done that. I mean, that's made me wonder, oh, so yeah, if we do get box sets, it'll probably include the animation. So I'm going to have to buy Evil of the Daleks again, which is, you know, fine. <laughs> um, and Power of the Daleks for like the 38th time or whatever it is, but that's okay. So it'd be extreme, interesting if, if... Extreme special edition. Extreme, extreme special edition. 3D. Um, but yeah, I do wonder now if, if that, you know, I, I don't want the animations to stop. I really like them, but... The one advantage is we might get the you know the collections collections out now. Yeah, that's interesting. I I wonder, I wondered similarly if I'm not like you, Jason, and think like all of you, like I'm optimistic that it'll come. They'll they'll come back in some form. Um, you know, I, I think the BBC America just had a, if I understood correctly, they just had a run a contract of like we're going yeah. to release many, and then it runs out here, and they just haven't renewed, and that's yeah. very typical. It happens a lot. Obviously, all we all panic as fans and go, oh my god, everything's cancelled. But like it's um it's just like you know they're just someone else is going to have to fund them and it's just a question of finding it but i think the, the will is that there's obviously you know these you, like you said uh how many people you know in in terms of units are going to buy tons and tons of dvds of smugglers how many units is going to shift it it's i think it's probably okay it's not going to be huge compared to a lot of other things but it will always sell something and it's just a question of finding the right people to fund it to sell enough and also i think with you adam i think i agree with what you said about how it how it plugs into the collection sets because that's another big part of it they're like well if we can make this then we can sell this and you know they that you know we're looking at uh, they're probably they're over a third of the way through releasing all the collection box sets for classic they're talking about you know possibly is there a question of them doing it for the post 20 you know 2005 box sets yeah. which you know this I, th- I think if whoever comes to the table with the money i think there's plenty of argument there to say um you know there is an audience there's all these ways of doing it and with all these animations, they've now got various different styles to showcase and put forward and go, look, this one costs this much, this one costs this much. And I think with something like Evil of the Daleks, this is going to be one of the ones they'll be slapping down going, look what we can do. Um, or that's how far it had gone so far. Let's go, you know, let's go further with it. I think there's hope. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is this is a series that uh, has come back, been resurrected several yeah. times, you know, it's... Uh... Well, I think we were told after the very first animation, which uh, was uh, the, the two episodes for the invasion, wasn't it? I think we were told, oh, this is a one-off. That's it. That's your lot. We're only doing this. And because literally as soon as they did that, I think Cosgrove Hall, who did the animations for that, went out of business, didn't they? Yeah. And then they said, well, that, that's it. You're not getting any more. And then lo and behold, you know, they pick up the mantle and, you know, we get more animation. So, you know, I, I do think that it, it isn't the end. I, I think there will be somebody there to to pick it up. Um, so whether that is going to be, you know, like mentioned Big Finish, you know, who have actually done, haven't they? They've done some of the animations. Um, you know, you, or, you know, is it Planet 52 is one of the other um, kind of companies or groups that, that has done some of the animations as well or whether they all kind of like combine together or you know as we said you know russell t davis you know says bad wolf we're now doing an animation you know got an animation unit and we now you know finish these off and if they become exclusive to the collection sets then that's an incentive for fans who perhaps otherwise wouldn't have bought the collection sets to then buy them you know and that increases sales or perhaps like you say you know Britbox come in and they stream them exclusively to BritBox to 
you know, increase the subscriptions for BritBox for a period of time and then they release them, like, you know, commercially. You know, there's there's lots of different options for them to still to continue. Yes, they very definitely are. We're leaving... We're leaving, we're leaving we've part with our money many times for exactly the same story, so... Uh, we love a double and a triple bit, you know. <laughs> That's what yeah. Doctor Who fans are here for. We'll do it again. Mm-hmm. We're leaving a light on in that Emperor Dalek. Is just that. Yes. That's <laughs> we're we're leaving that lit here. Um, and also, I think we've got an, an trap. One I've got will be doing another um, reviewing another uh, animation release with the Galaxy Four review is coming up soon. Um, they'll also be doing uh, the Abominable Snowman when that comes out in May. I think May ish. Mm-hmm. That we've got. V- I am so excited about that because um, uh, that's another steel book for me. I've already pre-ordered. I, I may even go steelbook on that. I'm so excited. I reviewed the vinyl on Trap One and fell. I didn't really know the story that well, and I totally fell in love with that story. So I'm super excited about that. It's one of the most memorable novelizations from oh. my childhood for sure. Thank you. So I, I just it should warn you that uh, when I, I pre-ordered it as well, but Amazon was saying coming out in 2099, which I presume was a mistake. <laughs> I'll be dead. Luckily, I've got an old Gothic time machine cabinet with swing doors that's powered by static. Let's jump in. <laughs> Um, thank you very much uh, for listening to, to, to us uh, go through Evil of the Daleks. I hope you've all enjoyed it at home. Um, has anyone got anything going on? Any recommendations? Anything? Any plugs? Um, Adam, how, I know you have your uh, Real McCoy podcast. Where do we find you and all of that? Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, we're currently going through, very slowly, <laughs> going through the new adventures. Um, we should, uh, by the time this drops, hopefully have one out either now or soon about transit uh you can find us on twitter at what is it i always have to remind myself uh real underscore pod uh so yeah that that's an ongoing concern and please listen and and enjoy and yeah fabulous how about you jason how's your channel going um quite good bearded geek toy reviews on youtube um i've done just done my 99th video wow so I review um, action figures and various toys uh, doctor who star wars marvel dc um NECA, um which do excellent horror figures uh i've got a uh, frankenstein boris karloff frankenstein figure uh coming up for a review shortly so i'm not sure if i'm going to do that for my hundredth uh, video, um, but I'm trying to think of something special from a hundredth video. But you can find me on YouTube, Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, and I'm also on Twitter, Django Max seventy two, and Instagram, uh, Bearded Geek Toys. Nice. How about you, Denise? I have nothing to plug at the moment. Well, that's but, not um, true because we did. I, the, the only thing I've got to plug is the same thing you got to plug, which is the, my favourite podcast that I have ever recorded, which was our Canine Audio Annual. <laughs> uh, oh, that was so much fun! Which we like the most obscure thing I've ever had to review, and that turned out to be the most fun I've ever had. We were both. We were. We were all. It was uh, me, you, and Cy Hart. Uh, and Mark, and Mark, yeah. of course. Uh, we were all slightly post New Year. We were all full of Quality Street, feeling the love, and we all watched Canine and Company and got slightly hysterical. And it was one of my favourite things ever. So, if you haven't listened to that, please listen to that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and uh, the, and Trap One will be back. I think uh, with Mark and Co are going to be reviewing uh, the Big Finish Ninth Doctor audio Lost Warrior. So I believe that's coming up next. And I know that the season seventeen spectacular trap one will be coming out soon so listen out for that but um thank you for listening to this and from all of us 
Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.